0: All right. Thank you guys. Good seeing everyone this morning. We're grateful that you're joining with us in our worship experience, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And uh, I hope that whether here in person or online, you will let us know of your presence this morning. Just take the time to uh, text uh, FL respond to the number provided for you, 833-571-3475. And uh, it's always our prayer. And this is uh, something we pray about weekly, is that during the course of the service, God's spirit would speak to you, uh, challenge you somehow in your faith journey and relationship with him knowing that for some of you it means that uh, you're at a stage in a season you're at a place where you need to finally make that commitment to the Lord Jesus making him the Lord of your life and uh, we'd love to talk with you about that what that means what that looks like the implications of that of that for others of you if you're a follower of Christ already the opportunity to talk with you about being a part of a church family and how vital that is from a biblical perspective of what it is to be a part of a family of faith and uh, supporting and encouraging one another. I want us to go back to uh, the book of Romans chapter 14. We left off at the end of chapter 14 last week. It's a rather significant section. I think it's a very interesting section, intriguing section there from 14.1 to where we're going to finish today in chapter 15 and verse 13. Because in this section, Paul is dealing with non essentials in the life of the church. Uh, in his particular first century context, the non essentials, and I, when I say non essentials, these are things that are non essential to salvation, have no bearing whatsoever. Uh, Whether you practice them or not, have no bearing whatsoever on your salvation. Man is justified by faith alone Uh, what God has accomplished through Christ Jesus. And yet, because people come from varied backgrounds, because the gospel of Christ is impartial, it means that people come and respond to the gospel from from all ethnicities, all walks of life, uh, that all barriers are eliminated. There is no Jew or Gentile, no barbarian or Greek, weak, strong, wise, foolish, all of those boundaries are eradicated by the gospel. Uh, Paul's not naive as I mentioned last week and he recognizes that as people come from various backgrounds to the life of faith into congregational life, there's always opportunity for social conflict with those kinds of of backgrounds, those kind of dynamics when when they come into play. And so that is Paul's concern, not that there's a schism in Rome already, Uh, but Paul is writing from the context of Corinth where there has been very real differing issues. Now, Paul addresses in this chapter what potentially, and I think he does it from a perspective that is hyperbole, greatly exaggerated, Uh, those who won't eat certain foods, those who uh, do not drink certain drinks, those that observe certain days, and those who do not. Uh, He he says these are non-essentials to the life of faith, but Paul is writing from Corinth where as we saw last week, there has been a very real conflict among that congregation, among the believers in that faith community uh, regarding meat that had been sacrificed to idols, whether that was appropriate for a believer, a follower of Christ to partake to eat of that meat uh, later after it had been sacrificed to idols or, or not. And so there's no reason to think that there is a schism in the church at Rome. Paul's never been to Rome. There's no indication of any prior correspondence like we have on other occasions in other letters where Paul has written in response to an inquiry or a plea for Paul in his wisdom and his role as an apostle to, to offer leadership in, in issues of conflict for particular congregations. Paul's heartbeat for Rome is, I want to get to Rome. We know that his agenda is to get to Rome. This become his base of operations for the greater westward expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to be the base of operations for what will take him, hopefully, to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so Paul, just knowing human nature being what it is, when I get there, I don't want there to be any conflict like I'm having to deal with here in in Corinth. And so Paul is is offering some guidelines, if you will, some guidelines for for how we deal with non-essentials in the community of faith. There are those who practice some things, uh, those who are libertarians, those who have liberty and freedom when it comes to some things, but then for others, it's, they have an aversion to these things because of their own conscience. And so when those potential conflicts arise, Paul says, let me give you some guidelines. Here's some things to think about. And the first one, as we saw there in those first six verses of, of chapter 14, The first thing that Paul said, and we looked at these two last week, the the first one was that there are acceptable differences between those accepted by God. We as believers and followers of Christ, with all of our opinions, all of our personal preferences, nonetheless, when it comes to non-essentials. Now, remember, this is non-essentials. We're not talking about those things that, that are objectively forbidden in Scripture. We're not talking about the thou shalt nots. Those things we, we can never justify, the, the practice of those things. But Paul is talking about non-essentials. And so Paul says there's, there's acceptable differences. There, there are things that you have in, in your lifestyle that I don't. They're not related to salvation. Those are acceptable among people that have been accepted by God. In fact, Paul would say in, in verse 3 of chapter 14, the one who eats and you can fill in your blank for, for whatever non-essential it is that you deal with in your life. And listen, every, every generation has their non-essentials. Every generation has their sense of non-essentials that they have mistakenly used as a litmus test that what my preferences are, the danger is, is that I use my personal opinions and preferences as a litmus test to measure the genuineness of your faith that's when it becomes problematic. Every generation, especially in the Southern evangelicals, uh, the evangelical tradition of the South, we have, we, have so, we have so many non-essentials that are just provincial in nature. I mean, the rest of worldwide Christendom, you, you tell, you tell the, the rest of worldwide Christendom some of the things that in the evangelical South that people have as non-essentials in the life of faith that they take very seriously sometimes, these traditions of men. And I mean, the rest of Christianity is just scratching its head, like, how did you ever come to that? So every generation has its non-essential issues that it wants to use as the litmus test of who is genuine and who's not as genuine. In their faith that's when you have a problem and so what what Paul is pleading for is for you and I to have an understanding of salvation that is so much that is so much grand grander that that is so much bigger than the salvation that you are trying to define by your own non-essentials he desires for each and every one of us a salvation that is bigger than the one that we now hold to One that is bigger than these non-essentials that you think are measuring sticks for how genuine your faith is. Paul says that there are some acceptable things. There are things that are acceptable among those accepted by God. Second thing he said last week that we observed in verses 13 through 23 is that our freedom in Christ, that our freedom in Christ is to be moderated by love and with responsibility. My freedom in Christ is to be moderated by, by love and, and with responsibility. Notice Paul says, again in verse, in verse 15, for if because of food, and again, fill in the blank with your non-essential. For if because of food your brother or sister is hurt, you're no longer walking in accordance with love. Freedom moderated by love. Do not destroy with your choice of food that person for whom Christ died because here's Paul's conclusion in verse 17 for the kingdom of God and again this is the plea this is this is the desire of Paul for us to have an understanding of salvation that is so much bigger than this one we're trying to define by non-essential things and this is how you get there understanding of the kingdom of God What God desires for you to understand regarding your salvation and your relationship with him and living out kingdom life, it is so much bigger, it is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. A third thing, a a third of guidance that Paul offers this morning as we continue forth. Paul would have us to understand that Christ is our model for all relationships. And that's, that's really what's at stake for Paul. Paul wants us to, Paul is, is vying for, not, not for uniformity. Not that we all hold the same opinions, that we come to the same conclusions regarding non-essentials. Paul is not striving for uniformity, but unity that in a world that is that is that is characterized by division and strife and conflict what is going to make us different in the background of our rich diversity and all of that baggage what is going to make you and I as the community of faith what's going to make us look different to the world what is going to be unique about our witness well for paul it's unity that even in the midst of this great diversity, we present to the world a unified front. And for Paul, that is accomplished, that is achieved when Christ is our model for relationships. Notice in verse 1, chapter 15, Paul says, now, now we who are strong. Now, Paul includes himself. And Paul's doing a little bit of self-identification here. We who are strong, I, I count myself among the strong. That is, I, I have no self-condemnation in my life for those things that, that have been deemed non-essential to salvation. Things in and of themselves, Paul in his mind, we know that, that for Paul all things are neutral. That is, that there is nothing inherently evil or good about things. They're neutral. They become either good or evil. They become either honorable or dishonorable based based upon the attitude of the individual towards those things. But Paul in his self-identification, he says, we we who are strong, those who have no self-condemnation, no conscionable objection to to these kinds of things, listen to the burden that is placed upon us who are strong. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses and that doesn't mean shortcomings or faults when it uses the word weaknesses. It just means those that those individuals that, that have an aversion to certain things because of their own conscience. And so we we who are strong. So we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Keep in mind the model of, of Christ Himself. And so Paul identifies himself with those individual for whom uh, there are no things that, that are unclean, as he's already said back in chapter 14 and, and verse 14, uh, that, that anything can be, be eaten in a way that, that honors the Lord, 14, 2, and 6. But Paul says, it's my burden as one that is in a position of strength. It is, my, it is my duty and my responsibility to bear the burden of those who are weak. And that verb that is used there, to bear, it's a word that, that means to take up in order to carry something somewhere else. It means to take up and to carry something somewhere else. So Paul's saying it's my burden, it's my responsibility. I'm the one that has to, as the one that has liberty, it's my responsibility to forego my rights and my privileges for for the benefit of, of my brothers, not just to please ourselves. Each of us, the strong, each of us is to bear, is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for his building up. This is a practical way. You know, Paul has already said back in chapter 13 and verses 9 and 10, Paul's already said that by loving our neighbor, neighbor, we we fulfill the law. And so you want want to accomplish what he is, you want that to be readily available in your life, to be readily played out in your life, the fulfillment of the law? Love your neighbor. This is what it looks like in real time, foregoing your rights and, and your privileges for the edification, the building up of your of your brother. For even Christ, verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. Quoting Psalm 69 9. Do you know by quoting that psalm what Paul is doing to us? He is weaving us, he is weaving us. into the gospel of Christ, he is weaving us into the passion narrative of Jesus. He's saying that when this is our attitude, we are weaving ourselves into that passion narrative of Christ who gave himself up. Paul says this is the attitude that is to characterize us as as the people of God. And so we see what it does is it it puts limits on our liberty. My liberty, being in a a position of of strength, I'm speaking for all who consider themselves strong. My liberty, listen, it's not something to be flaunted. It's not not something to wave in the face of those who are are weak, who enter a different place than than am I. Those that have conscionable issues. The freedom that we have in Christ Jesus is not a position of, of spiritual superiority. It's not, it's not a license to do, to do as we please. Yes, Paul would say, in your liberty, all things are permissible, but they become impermissible when they become an obstacle, as Paul said in chapter 14, when they become a stumbling block or an obstacle to those who are weaker in the faith. That's where liberty ends. Where in my doing and in my practice of such things, it causes someone else who is weaker in the faith to stumble. You see, that was, that was Paul's concern as, as well. Over in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, listen to, listen to what Paul says. Because what, what I want you to see is Paul's, Paul is not asking the Christians in Rome to do something that he hasn't done himself. Verse 32, Paul says, do not offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Then Paul says, "In listen in chapter 11, verse 1 here, he says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Christ being his model. You know what the difference is here over here in the Roman, why Paul holds forth Christ? Paul said to the church at Corinth, be imitators of me. I've imitated Christ. So you be imitators of me. Well, the church in Rome didn't know Paul. Church in Corinth does know Paul. That's why he would hold himself forth as as an example, be imitators of me. So the church at Rome doesn't know Paul, so he assumes they're going to default to Christ. You, You follow the model of Christ when it comes to these relationships and how we are to pursue them. For whatever was written in regard to Christ, verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might, we might have hope. Understand, I'm pointing you to Christ because all scripture has instructed us multiple, ultimately to look to none other than Christ. And the purpose of all scripture at the end of the day is to instruct us and to point us to Christ Jesus. And then Paul changes to a tone of prayer. In verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according Christ Jesus. Not according to your opinions. Not, I'm not interested in you, again, not, uh, not uniformity, but unity. To be, of, to be of one mind, the same mind, with one another. Now listen, he, when, he's, when he's talking about the same mind of one another, with one another according to Christ Jesus, He's not talking about non-essentials, that we come to the same conclusion regarding non-essentials. That's why he's writing in the first place. It's okay that you have different lifestyles on non-essentials. That's why I'm writing you. It's fine that you have different, that each one of you hold different conclusions regarding attitudes and practices towards non-essentials. That's fine. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to be of one mind when it comes to your commitment to Christ and your understanding of the mission that has been entrusted to us as the church it means self-denial it means self-sacrifice as Paul said what I what what Christ Jesus did for us Paul says that that's the position I've embraced that's the attitude that I've embraced I've been willing to forego my rights and my privileges, privileges so, that, so that others might, might grow in their faith. And then finally in verse 6, so that with one purpose and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the best witness we offer to this world, that when we go out from this place, even in the midst of all of our diversity of opinions and personal preferences, when it comes to our conclusions regarding non-essential issues. Paul said, I don't need you to be on the same page with all that stuff. That's the uniqueness of your personality and your life. But here's what makes the difference. When you go out with the same voice, you're all saying the same thing about salvation. Salvation about Christ Jesus and our understanding of the life of faith so that God the Father might be glorified. That's when the world sits up and takes notice. Listen, we don't need uniformity. Everybody in here, I wouldn't want everybody in here looking like me, acting like me. Same thing for, listen, you go out into this world and even with your not differing conclusions from mine on non-essential issues, God has wonderfully and fearfully made you to have an impact where your feet are because of your personality, affinity groups to which you will have a relationship and an influence. You can impact people I never could. You can impact people people on your pew never could. Same thing is true for all of us. And so it's only as as we embrace these differences and celebrate these differences, but with one mind in Christ Jesus and one voice and one purpose that we offer a witness to the world that God would desire for the grandeur of his vision. Paul knows where this redemptive salvation, this redemptive plan of God is headed. And he needs us as the people of God, all rowing in the same direction of knowing who we are, what we are, and the objective that we are seeking to achieve. I read or shared with our staff this past uh, Monday, I think it was. I just recently reread a book that I'd read years ago. And the reason I reread it was because it's uh, being made into a movie. Some of you may have read it, it's entitled The Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 crew team, rowing team, eight man rowing team at the University of, of Washington. Anyway, it's a book written by Daniel James Brown. It's gonna be made into a movie. Supposedly they've already started, uh, George Clooney's the director. So I, I reread it wanting to know the, the storyline, the personalities of, of those involved. I hope it's a good movie. But it's a phenomenal story, an inspirational story, of eight individuals, nine counting the young man that calls Cadence. But it's these eight individuals, nine individuals, from varying backgrounds. And this team from the University of Washington won the national championship, went to Berlin in 1936 to represent the United States, won a gold medal at the Berlin Olympics. But it's a fascinating story about these diverse individuals from backgrounds, all of them challenging and and hard. They were familiar with with the Depression years. And here they are as college students. If you know anything about rowing, and the book makes it clear, the uniqueness of it, every position in that that racing shell has a purpose. Like there's a certain skill set that is necessary in the first position that is different from the second position and the second position in that boat has a different skill set that doesn't work in the third position and so you have eight different s- seats there and that in that racing shell each one requiring specific gifts that are necessary to reach your destiny and to win the race The protagonist, probably the key figure in that book, if there is one, was a young man by the name of Joe Rantz. And you read the story, there's kind of a biography on each individual in that racing shell throughout the book, but Joe Rantz had to be the most fascinating. His mother died when he was four years old. His dad remarried when he was eight. His stepmother didn't really want to raise the children from the previous marriage so the father of Joe Rance kicked him out of the house, kicked him out of the house. So here you have a, you have a 10, 12-year-old kid who figures how to, figures out how to put a roof over his head. By age 15, he was. Raising, by age 15, he was, he was living in an abandoned house. But this kid just figured out how to get by, how to eat. How to keep a roof over his head, how to go through high school, and eventually figured out how to go to college, University of Washington. As you can imagine, someone in those circumstances, he was extremely independent and trusted absolutely no one. In the book, there is. They're trying to figure out, there's these four racing teams, these four teams at the University of Washington, and they're trying to match, because of the importance of each seat, they're constantly changing, trying to figure out what's the best combination of of the eight rowers. Which eight work the best together, and in what seat? Joe Rantz was arguably the best athlete, and without a doubt, was the best rower. But Joe was the one they bounced around the most often because they couldn't figure out with what team did he fit. He just didn't work well with the team. George Pocock, who designs the racing shells, it's the late George Pocock now. His company still makes racing shells to this day, over 80 years. He's kind of the the guru of that day and time. He was the guru of crewing. And he took an interest in Joe. And this elderly man got to know Joe, got to know his story, all about his background. And he watched Joe, how he just couldn't fit in. He knew he just couldn't trust his teammates. Wanted to operate independently. Independently. And George finally pulled him aside one day and said, Joe, he said, you have learned how in your life to row beyond the team, to row beyond your pain. You have learned to row beyond the pain. He said, you have learned to row beyond that voice inside your head when times get hard. You have learned to row beyond that voice that tells you to quit. That tells you to pull back. He said, you've rowed beyond all of that in your life. But he said, Joe, I want you to hear me. You will never row Beyond your teammates in the boat. And until you learn to trust your teammates, until you learn that you're a part of a team, you will never succeed. You will never realize your potential, nor will your teammates. That's the church. What we are called to be and to do cannot be done alone. In the fullness of God's grandeur of salvation, it has to be done together. What God envisions has to be done together by his people. If we are to fulfill our destiny as the people of God. That's why Paul says it is crucial for us that Christ is our model in all relationships. Final thing, Paul says another principle he offers when it comes to non-essentials is that our acceptance of one another, our acceptance of one another is prophetic confirmation of God's grand vision of salvation that our acceptance of one another is the fulfillment, is the prophetic fulfillment of God's grand vision of salvation. Notice there in verse 7, he goes back to the very thing he said in verse 1 and 3 of chapter 14 about our acceptance of one another. Here he comes, wrapping it up again, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us for the glory. Of God therefore accept one another for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision as the Jews the Hebrews for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision in behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers this salvation of which we're a part what God has done through Christ Jesus I mean, this is something that, ma- that has maintained the fidelity of the covenant made with Abraham. This is not something separate, too. This is not something apart from what God has done through Christ Jesus, of which we're a part. This is the grandeur of what he wants us to recognize, that a salvation that is so much bigger than just missing hell and making heaven. Oh, it's a grandeur of vision that, that is far anything we imagine. So you see the importance of accepting one another. And listen, this, 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 this isn't just toleration. This is the idea that, that you and I have a formative part in bringing people along. That's why we understand, that's why it's imperative that we understand the magnitude of this, of this salvation. You and I are a part of what was foretold by the prophets and you see that in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, he keeps citing these Old Testament passages there in chapter 9. He cites Psalm 1849 and uh, verse 10, Deuteronomy 32, 43, uh, verse 11, Psalm 117, 1, and finally in verse 10, Isaiah 11, verse 10. Paul saying everywhere you turn in the Old, what we would call the Old Testament whether we're talking about the law or the prophets or the Psalms. Listen, it's all about what God is doing. It's the vision of God that divisions and lines and boundaries are going to be eradicated. The vision that God, the grandeur of God's prophetic vision for salvation, it eradicates the lines between Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Greek, weak, strong, Wise, foolish, all those lines are eliminated. You're a part of it. You see why it's so important that you have a salvation and an understanding of salvation that is bigger than the one you have created in your mind based upon not doing certain things, based upon non-essentials. Because if you really understand the grandeur The magnitude of God's redemptive purposes and the salvation that awaits that we are moving toward, you know what it does for you? Makes you more patient. See, if your faith is defined by do's and don'ts, you're always measuring people. Oh, they must not be as spiritual as I am. They do that. I would never do that. Makes you impatient. Always makes you a judge of others. But when I understand the eradication of these lines that are taking place in the redemptive purposes of God, I'm just patient with other people, accepting them where they are right now so that maybe they will, knowing that time is going to bring them to a different place, that that as I'm patient as God uses me instead of judging me, when I forego as a strong, as someone that is strong, someone who foregoes my rights and my privileges, meeting people where they are, not that, I'm, not that I'm called to offer correction there for all these non-essential issues. But just meeting people where they, I want, to conti- I want to contribute to their growth, to them coming into an understanding of salvation and the kingdom of God that is truly built upon righteousness and peace and joy. Sometimes it takes people a while to get there. Not that they need to be corrected, but my desire for them is to really know salvation in a way that brings peace and joy and that sense of righteousness from God in Christ Jesus. To be a part of that process in a way that is encouraging, in a way that is formative, and not not in a way that is condescending and judgmental. But you've got to have this grand vision. You're going to be patient. If you're going to be a part of that process of what God is accomplishing with the passage of time. Bob Wills, the late Bob Wills from Kosey, Texas. He may have had the wisest song titled of all time. Time changes everything. Time changes everything. And it does. You happy, satisfied where you are right now? Time changes everything. Are you unhappy, despondent, despairing right now? Time changes everything. No wiser words ever uttered. That's why you need patience. Patience and unity in the body of Christ. Because we are a part of a salvation that is so much bigger than the one that we than the one we seek to cling to right now you know God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world and I'm pretty sure he didn't send you to do it nor did he send me to do it I pray God will give to you a salvation, not preoccupied with eat and drink, but one that is filled with righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Father, might your spirit broaden our minds and our understanding to a salvation that is truly established upon Christ Jesus and him crucified. That, Father, no longer we as your people would measure the genuineness of another on the basis of food and drink, non-essentials. But that our differences might truly be celebrated, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that each one of us hold a vital seat, a vital place in the kingdom of God as we roll our way into your eternal purposes, and that the world might hear from us, a unified voice for a unified purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.